Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to Kudzu Vine for April 10th, 2022, uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. And good to have you back on and and with us uh, after a week off hiatus that you have in a week before that. Getting back together. Catherine won't be on tonight, um, so maybe we'll get the whole crew back together for the first time in a month for Easter Sunday and our show. Um, but we got some things to talk about. Uh, Sasha Eisenberg, um, who is the author of so many great uh, political books, is going to be on, but he's actually going to come on and talk to us about a piece he wrote on um, you know, abortion rights and how to um, – take the recent laws that have happened and turn them into positives long-term. He penned this piece uh, on slow and boring, and so it was very different and thought-provoking, and so we're going to discuss that with him um, here in about 20 minutes. But until then, we've got plenty of things to talk about. And the first one I just thought we need to discuss was you see a lot of polls, and and, and they're all over the place, like a Texas poll we saw this past week. Uh, But this one was actually, I think, a little more credible than some of the ones that um, have come out recently, and it did a good job of uh, talking about the Senate race and gubernatorial race in Georgia, and it was by Emerson Polling from Emerson College. And so let's start out with the um, governor's side uh, because it had um, you know, some more things going on because it, had, um, it tested both candidates and, and things like that. And so – and it did the primary as well. And I guess it makes more sense to start out with a Republican primary. Primary, There's not a Democratic one, um, and, and so nothing to talk about there. But in the primary, it showed Brian Kemp with 43 percent, David Perdue with 32 percent, um, whomever Davis is with 5 percent, and Candace Taylor with 2, 1 percent for Williams, and 17 percent undecided. Um, I First off, I guess I'm going to just make a little side comment. Not good news for Candace Taylor because I kind of assumed she would take, suck up some of um, uh, Vernon Jones' vote, the people that for some reason just wanted to do something different than the leading two candidates. Uh, but obviously the 17 is important. And the fact that Brian Kemp is under 43 percent – I'm sorry, is at 43 percent under 50 percent I found pretty important as well. Uh, Tim, what, what were some of your takeaways from this part of the poll? Well, uh, you know, it would it would be nice to see a runoff in this one, and I am beginning to wonder if that's not exactly what's going to happen. Uh, the the Emerson poll actually is Kemp's low point. Now, I don't know if this is because it's a poll of registered voters or what is going on, but he ran worse in this poll than he did, say, in the Fox poll, uh, the Fox Channel 5 poll uh, back about a month ago. Um, he he ran much worse than he ran in a poll of likely voters from Fox News. But uh, in looking at his overall, Kemp is running – Oh, at about 45 or 46% of the vote, he's only hit 50% in one poll since January. And so you got to wonder if maybe between the others that uh, with, with like 12 or 13% of the vote is all that is uh, undecided. You got to think undecided voters are not that crazy about voting for the incumbent, or they would have said so to start with. So you got to wonder if maybe 
Purdue's not going to force him into a runoff. Now, Candace Taylor, we, we've talked about her before. The libertarians really like her for some reason, or at least the libertarians in my county, that's who's supporting her. That's who's putting her signs out. I assume it's the same all over. Well, what do the libertarians normally get in a statewide race? Well, 2 or 3% of the vote, right? So she's running at overall at 3%. I figured that's about where she's going to stay. Um. Will, at, between her and Davis, will they get enough to force a runoff? Well, I think they might. So um, it it, uh, it really looks like we may be looking at a runoff, and that's that's going to make Stacey Abrams very happy and, and a lot of Democrats very happy, isn't it, David? Well, one person I'll say it won't make happy is Republican donors for either uh, Brian Kemp or – David Perdue, because they're just going to burn money crazy in that runoff. I mean, I think that's the biggest uh-huh. thing that happened. How much it actually impacts the general election, I'm not really sure. Well, um, but it'll, I it'll, do think it, they'll burn a lot of campaign cash up. Yeah, it'll at least delay the start of the general election because they'll have to spend the runoff period attacking each other. There won't be any point in attacking Stacey Abrams. She's not going to be on the runoff ballot. They are. Yeah, it will. And one thing that would, to me would have to really concern Brian Kemp and his um, advisors is if you look at this latest legislative session, he got everything he wanted. I mean there was some mm-hmm. red meat for the, the social conservatives with the, um, you know, the bill affecting um, transgender um, athletes and sports and and a few other things and then, you know some of those usual you know possibly there may have been uh, even though they passed one so restrictive but I mean there was there was some of those kind of bills passed but then also you know Brian Kemp uh, they had they passed but not only a pay raise for teachers and a bonus they passed it for um, college level teachers that are state level teachers and I want to say state employees broadly also got a pay raise. And so, you know, he was sending, I, I think, uh, uh, gifts for teachers to buy more stuff for their classrooms. I'm familiar with that area because I got all the letters and, and all the text. And so he got all these things he wanted. And I think, uh, honestly, like, for instance, with the teacher pay raise, that's one thing that in 2018, Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp both agreed on. They both were in favor of, you know, teachers' pay raising $5,000 over the past four years, over the next four years, which, you know, that did come to fruition now. Um, but um, all this, all these things that Brian Kemp got, if you, if you look at and the dates were April 1st to 3rd, so it's a pretty recent poll, it didn't um, seem to, you know, resonate with Republican voters. And I have to wonder because. if some of these um, items that he was, you know, giving away uh, are passing were not aimed at the wrong voters. Were not aimed at you know. Well, hardcore, can I sing your answer? Voters and therefore they only can, want one thing. Can I, Donald Trump is president. Can I? Can I sing your answer for you? M I C K E Y T R U M P. The Trump factor. The Trump factor is still there. That is the one thing that the governor simply cannot do anything about. He cannot change what went on between he and Donald Trump. He certainly is not going to make a fan out of Donald Trump. We both know that Donald Trump has a lot of support still in this state, maybe not as much as he did. But he has a lot of uh, support among Republican voters, and there is a good, solid core of Trump voters that are not going to vote for Kemp because Donald Trump does not want them to vote for Kemp. Now, there will be some Trump voters, obviously, that will vote for Kemp. He hopes enough. But uh, can you imagine if this thing goes to a runoff, can you imagine Donald Trump just sitting down there in Florida doing nothing? No, he's going to be in Georgia as soon as he can get here with the biggest 
pro-Donald Trump rally you've ever seen because in Donald Trump's mind, the race is between Governor Kemp and him. And uh, who's going to win that? Well, I guess that's that's what the runoff really is going to be about. Yeah, and um, I mean – that's the thing, and Brian Kemp is not like a sympathetic Republican to Democrats. I mean, if, if, if Brian Kemp were not the person that ran that campaign in 2018 and then also was very cavalier in the way that he you know, was in charge of the 2018 election, but then you know, you know, moved people off the voter rolls. I mean, if he was, say, more of a Charlie Baker, Larry Hogan-type figure – he might concede, he might could see some uh, some Democrats that are like, well, um, you know, I, 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 there's no Democratic primary in the governor's race. There's no Democratic primary in the Senate race. I'll just go ahead and get involved just because some of the Republicans, you know, like Jody Heiss say in the, the Secretary of State's race, um, you know, Herschel Walker is woefully unqualified to be a senator. I might go over there and vote just for good government, but because Brian Kemp has done nothing to endear himself to anyone in the middle over to the left, he's not going to get that. He's not going to get the benefit of the doubt. So therefore, this is all going to be Republican primary voters. It's going to be decided by Republicans, and that may worry. I would be worried about Brian Kemp because he is not going to do well because those folks want um, Donald Trump as president, and that's all they're going to worry about. They're going to put the $2,000 bonus check. In the bank account, no. they're going to take the you know, two three thousand dollar pay raise, but they're not going to vote for him on the primary day. Yeah, yeah. See, see, he tried to walk on on both rails on the railroad track uh, by not only doing the good government thing, by but by the dog whistle political thing too to appeal to Trump's base. Well, in doing that, he only angered Democrats more. And he's not going to move Trump's base. I don't care what he talks about, what he tries to do with letting everybody walk around with a gun without a permit and stuff like that. And, and you know, uh, these attacks on transgender folks and stuff like that. Ain't none of that going to uh, – that's, none of that's going to resonate with Trump voters because they are Trump voters. That is their first – their main, their their only thing. You're either with Donald Trump or you're the enemy. It doesn't matter about your label. Now, the question is a simple one. Does Donald Trump have the influence now that he had two years ago? Does he or does he not have that much influence? And we're going to find out. First of all, on primary night, to see if Kemp gets to 50 plus one, and then we will find, if he doesn't, we'll find out again in the runoff, uh, first to see what Donald Trump does or says, and I think it's going to be plenty of both, and then what happens on uh, runoff election night as well. Uh, I would not bet on Trump at this point. I would not bet against Trump. At this point, I, I, I think it's kind of up in the air. Yeah, and, and another a line from that poll on the release, and I think uh, Emerson College asked a lot of good questions, you know, scenario, mm-hmm. and then also, um, you know, they went down and really, you know, thoroughly looked at everything. Kemp beats Purdue 44 to 39, while 16 undecided. Well, Brian Kemp could say, or, you know, somebody support Brian Kemp could say, hey, well, you know, he's got a six point lead. But he's also six under. Um, he's also six percent under that fifty percent number to win in a runoff. Sixteen percent undecided. And I, Tim, I think you're right. I think a lot of those don't go to the incumbent, like has always been the case. And then also intensity of voters. The most intense voters mm-hmm. are going to count more in that runoff. Um, so, you know. So where does that go? Um, so it's it's really going to be interesting to see what happens there. But then Emerson, they did another good job. They went ahead and polled the general, and they polled it both uh-huh. ways because Kemp and Purdue are both very likely nominees. I mean, you know, one obviously is the favorite of the other, but it's not like we know. 
so you got to test both. They tested both, and, and it really, in a general, it doesn't matter. And I'll say this is kind of interesting because, you know, my theory, and it still could be they don't show up, but my theory is is that Brian Kemp's voters will show up to vote for David Perdue, but I'm not so sure David Perdue voters show up for Brian Kemp or show up and vote in other races, and there's a big undervote for Brian Kemp in the general. But according to this poll, it's almost um, – Identical. Uh, Brian Kemp leads Stacey Abrams 51 44. Um, and then David Perdue leads Stacey Abrams 49 44. And that could be some people saying, oh, well, you know, I don't like how David Perdue's functioning. Will that 2% difference remain, you know, undecided? Because Stacey Abrams is at 44% either way. Um, in this poll, Joe Biden's approval rating was 42%. So basically, there's a, a solid Democratic base somewhere between 42 to 44, um, and then Stacey Abrams has to find that last, you know, six to seven percent to get over the hump. This is showing against either candidate. She's not in a great position at this moment in time. Pretty much like every Democrat in a swing state or a Republican state across the country. That's that's right. And then, you know, the first midterm of the party in power in the White House, things seem to be holding form. Now, when I look at a poll of polls, we show Kemp running at around 49 percent of the vote against Abrams in a poll of polls. And she's sitting on that 44 years talking about against Purdue. uh, She's. She's a, he's at 48, and she's at 45. In this poll, as in the poll of polls, um, Purdue seems to be running about three, uh, two points behind Kemp. Um, interestingly enough, you, you mentioned Biden's approval at 42. Well, that's exactly what Kemp's approval rating is, 42. The only difference being uh, Biden's disapproval is seven points higher. Kemp's at 42 and 42. That's not a terrible place to be for a, a governor, but not, not you know, a safe place either. Um, you got to wonder, if Purdue were to get the nomination, do you think, I think it would be far more likely. I could see Kemp Abrams voters. I cannot see Purdue Abrams voters. I think they would sit at home. What do you think? The Purdue voters. Yeah, I, I don't They'd know. They'd sit at home before they know. vote for Abrams. Yeah, I don't. I, I really, I, I'll be honest, I don't know that um, Stacey Abrams is going to get many of either supporters. I do think it's more likely that some of the people that are so hardcore in favor of Donald Trump that think thinks that, you know, David, I mean, uh, Brian Kemp is, um, not loyal and, and did the wrong things. They just either show up and vote for other races in the general and don't and leave that line blank, or they just don't show up at all. So therefore, in some that's why I can, can continue to contend that David Perdue is the um, stronger Republican candidate. Although I think he would honestly be the weaker um, governor. Um, you, you know, if you said. You must choose the chicken or the steak. Those are your only two choices, and it had to be Brian Kemp or David Perdue. I would prefer another four years of Brian Kemp over to David Perdue, and I'm not a big Brian Kemp fan. I just, but, but I guess the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know in that case. Yeah, but, but um, there's another thing, too. What what does the average Trump voter believe anyway about the election system that is rigged? Right, if their man loses to Kemp, they're gonna they're more likely to say, "Well, it's rigged anyway. I'm gonna sit it out." And and that's why I think that those voters are more likely to sit the thing out, while the Kemp voters, the few that might do it, would be more likely to flip and vote. Yeah. You know, for Stacey Abrams, so that's that's where I'm going with that. Yeah, I agree. The, 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 and, and that's probably a very small number, um, particularly in this yeah. environment. 
Um, I, I, yes, she so, only so, lost that's by one in high percentage. Sorry, yes. And I want to go ahead and welcome on to the Cousy Farm for the first time, Mr. Sasha Eisenberg. Welcome, Sasha. Oh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Oh, yes. Well, I was so glad to have you. I mean, I think we mentioned at the top of the show all the wonderful uh, political writing you've done over the years, and at some point, love to discuss that. The reason we had you on today was because just in the last few weeks, you wrote an article uh, on slow and boring, and you can take the time to describe you know, how that all came about too, um, called Abortion Activists Must Learn to Lose Well, uh, a very provocative title. Uh, just kind of summarize your thesis for any of our listeners that might not be have had the chance to read it. Yeah, you know, so we're entering a season when abortion rights activists are going to face probably their most difficult series of state-level political fights since at least uh, the mid to late 1980s and, and quite possibly ever. And um, I tried to offer some way to think about that, informed by research I'd done for my book, The Engagement, um, which was about the, the battles over same-sex marriage. And activists who were fighting for same-sex marriage were in a very similar situation throughout uh, the late 90s and, and uh, uh, the first decade of the century, where uh, their opponents initiated um, almost three dozen state-level conflicts uh, to ban same-sex marriage in state constitutions, and for many of them, it was sort of um, uh, guaranteed that, that those bills would pass. And uh, gay rights activists got smarter about thinking about what you should try to accomplish uh, when your opponent picks a fight that you know that you will lose. Yes. Well, um, I, I, I'm interested in this time because of period because – we have a lot of, you know, anti-abortion um, legislation that's getting passed. I mean, just when you read about it, you know, the Texas law and others that are just so draconian, restrictive. And in the time that all these bills are getting passed, we see polls showing that Democrats are doing worse than ever because seemingly people are voting on economic issues, not social issues. Um, when these, if this, let's say, there is a, a decision in um, over the summer from the Supreme Court, and a lot of these laws can get fully enacted, still going to vote on these in November, or are they going to talk about inflation and gas prices and just ignore um, this and other social issues? I mean, you know, I think the question is sort of where do we draw the line in our in our category between what's a social issue and an economic issue? Um, uh, the I think Democrats have found that that uh, have often looked at Republicans and thought that their base is far more unified over concern for these kind of sexual politics issues, for questions of who's on sitting on courts, state and federal. Um, and a lot of that is, has been that you know at least the way Democratic elites see it is that their base takes for granted that the victories of especially of the Warren. Um, and, and I guess early burger court eras uh, are sort of on the books and people don't see the need for friendly judges. And this, you know, a change in, in federal and state level abortion laws would test that, um, would, would, you know, obviously not the way that, that uh, uh, Democratic leaders would want to see it come about, but would be, uh, would, would for the first time, you know, allow them to go to their voters and say, you know, look, here's what, here, here's what the consequences um, of of not voting on these issues are, uh, which which you can imagine is the type of scenario that that makes it a lot harder for for Democratic voters to sort of take for granted how things are and and have some of the outsider anger that that has probably driven conservatives to vote on on issues like judges and abortion in the past. Yes. And another point uh, in your uh, piece that you wrote, you mentioned that some of the laws are, um, you know, could possibly um, hold rideshare drivers liable. And then I kind of started extrapolating out. I mean, somebody could take the public bus, or for that matter, a Greyhound if they went across state lines. And then, of course, you get into all kind of other folks um, that, you know, somebody lets them check into a motel the night before to spend the night. And all these people could be liable. 
Is this an area, if it did come to fruition, where all these people that didn't even know what was going on uh, get to help be held liable and could be sued, I guess, under the Texas and Missouri laws, um, is this a case where there might be a lot of backlash if some of this, you know, happens? Yeah, I mean, there's the possibility that there are the unintended consequences in pure political terms of implicating so many, exposing so many people to liability could be a, a, um, uh, a huge mistake for the authors, right? And, and this seems like, the scenario you mentioned seems like the type of thing where, you know, all of a sudden uh, uh, the abortion rights side of the debate gets, you know, trade associations and chambers of commerce who are worried because they're, you know, rental car members. If anything's going to radicalize, you know, Hertz and Avis, that might be the, the idea that, that the people who rent their cars are now going to be liable for, for, um, uh, for these things. And, yeah, I think there's a possibility that, um, that, that these things could go too far and basically, you know, implicate, uh, 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 you know, one of the things that was really important in, in the abortion politics in the, in, in the 60s and 70s and the sort of first wave of liberalization laws were that the cases were about doctors. Um, they weren't fundamentally often early on women's rights cases. They were about doctors who argued that restrictions on, you know, initially contraception and on abortion um, limited the ability of individual doctors or hospitals to practice medicine and exercise their free speech laws. And um, it, it is conceivable that you see something similar like this. You know, the American Medical Association was at the vanguard of, of liberalizing abortion laws and, and maybe the rideshare industry or, 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 or something like that serves a similar uh, a role in these fights. Yes. Well, one final question for now, and then I'm going to pass it to my co-host, who has more than I, I think I have some more after that, um, was something that's not in the article because it's happened just this past week. Uh, we didn't even know about it when I booked you. Was a 26-year-old woman from Texas has been um, charged under um, you know some component of the new Texas law. Um, have you heard any kind of um, reaction to that regarding you know how the um, abortion politics is impacted? I mean, I've seen people point to it as as, um, uh, as a sort of shocking outcome and evidence that 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 you know local officials are, are taking this more seriously. I mean, this was always the the place where pro life activists were um, intentionally ambiguous, which was what uh, you always for for decades you had this rhetoric from anti abortion activists who would say we want to ban abortion, we want laws that ban abortion, but we don't want to criminalize women who want abortions. And there was this very telling moment in the 2015, 2016 Republican primaries when um, uh, Donald Trump was asked this question, and he said, I, I believe it was Chris Matthews of Hardball asked him, and Trump, um, who was this, like, you know, new pupil trying to learn how to sound like an actual um, – Religious conservative said, "Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I'm pro-life." And then, and then uh, Matthews asked him, "Well, what do you think should happen to women who have abortion?" And then Trump says, "Well, I think there has to be some punishment." And that went too far. And Trump had to backtrack because that it was incredibly bad politics for uh, pro-life activists to be um, actually talking through the consequences of having having bans on this behavior. And so I, I haven't heard anything specifically about what happened this week, but you could see that that starts to move to um, uh, the, the, the area where uh, you, you, you could see pro-life activists having overreached, which is, you know, uh, I, I suspect even in the most conservative parts of the country that, that they know that, that – uh, Anything that, that criminalizes women uh, uh, who are in this position uh, will probably not be terribly popular. Yes, most definitely. Well, I'm going to pass it over to Tim for some more questions, and then they'll come back to me. Uh, Tim? Yeah, good evening, Mr. Eisenberg. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, when I was a teenager, I'm uh, going to betray my age some here, um, what people did 
in those days was they took to the streets to protest in mass numbers. I know I participated in an anti-war march against the Vietnam War. And then as a result, a lot of us felt that government policy was affected. It was changed. We felt that because we took to the streets in those numbers, that we were actually able to stop a war. And abortion activists in those days also took to the streets in in, um, big numbers. My question is, would that same type of thing work? Now, you know, we've seen what happened with the Black Lives Matter marches and the effect that it had. So should abortion activists do the same thing now? Would it work now like it did? 50 years ago? I would be skeptical that it would, in part because, you know, I think some of the success of big uh, mass demonstrations um, uh, and civil disobedience in the 60s, both around Vietnam and the civil rights movement, um, Mm -hmm. were in trying to raise awareness among uh, a, a country that might not have realized that uh, that the issues were um, uh, as divisive as they were. Uh, you know, I mean, the goal of a lot of civil rights demonstrations was to raise awareness in non-Southern states um, of opposition to Jim Crow. Uh, I think, you know, some of the, the consequence of anti-Vietnam war protests was to let the country know that, that you know, the, the foreign policy that, that, that successive White Houses had pursued was not without controversy. I think most Americans understand that, that positions on both sides of the abortion issue are, are deeply held. We have a country that's highly polarized on these issues. Um, I'm not sure that it's a matter of public education or persuasion that seeing people in the streets um, – uh, would do much to alter that. I and mean, I think one reason that the uh, one effect the Black Lives Matter protest had was they brought an issue or a set of issues that had not been on the political agenda onto the political agenda, which was you know, a whole set of issues around structural racism, particularly in the area of policing. Um, and mm-hmm. abortion's been on the political agenda for 40 years. And so, you know, even if you had a million people show up in in the biggest cities in the country or or tens of thousands in in every county seat tomorrow, I don't really think it would tell the country something new about about abortion. You know, the, the, I, this book I wrote about about same sex marriage, you know, which is basically a 25 year fight from 1990 to 2015. One of the things that was always notable about this, which I think stands as like the great civil rights victory social movement of, of my gener- slightly younger generation than you, Tim, um, uh, was that there, you know, you got this nationwide victory for marriage equality, and I don't think you could think about a single issue of mass protests, uh, let alone uh, civil disobedience. Never a big march, mm-hmm. even. Um, and so, you know, I think that there are sort of different ways to go about this, but I, I suspect that the, that, that, you know, the, the long-term project of, of developing a majority that is uh, uh, for, you know, understands a, a broad definition of, like, reproductive freedom um, won't happen through protests, but I think that's something, you know, you need a sort of expanded coalition, and part of that will be seeing the consequences of some of these laws in action, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Now, in this, you, you mentioned the polarization, and obviously we're in a very polarized era. In this polarized era, are we in danger of, say, with one election and another party taking control, are we in danger of entering into an era when not only abortion rights, not only gay rights, but civil rights in general will be scaled way back across the board. I think, uh, I mean, obviously there are 
sources of cultural tension that are emerging now which feel new or sharper to where they were years ago. That said, you know, it is mm-hmm. – the court, the court is likely to um, – in some form or another, backtrack on on Roe v. Wade, if not overturn it completely. But that is very rare from the Supreme Court. Even a Supreme Court like this one with a sort of clearly defined ideological project. Um, You know, I think that the the big victories for um, uh, civil rights and desegregation, the big victories for, for gay rights, sexual privacy, freedom um, are won and are not likely to be be taken away. Um, and, you know, and public opinion on a lot of these issues is not polarized. Um, mm-hmm. uh, support, for gay, support for gay marriage is over 70% now, including 50%. Um, you know, certainly in, in big strokes, talk about racial equality. Americans are overwhelmingly supportive of, of efforts at desegregation and at least legal equality that were, that were won through the 50s and 60s. So I, I, I think that major backsliding in those areas is, is unlikely. Um, I do think that, you know, we are one consequence of the uh, sort of emerging awareness of deeper uh, uh, racial injustice in this country. Um, that the Black Lives Matter uh, movement has awakened has been backlash to it. And, um, and one consequence of the gains of, of gays and lesbians has been that, you know, there's been not a direct backlash, but there's been a lot of backlash, especially to trans folks and um, uh, on matters of gender identity. And I think it's really important to see the ways in which those things are connected right now. And it, often it's, a, it's about parents about the authority mm-hmm. of parents um, against a broader society that um, uh, supposedly is, is interfering with their ability to, um, to sort of raise their children as they see fit. And um, I think, you know, those are, are being connected in an important way, and this has been like an incredibly potent form of, of conservative politics for a, for a very long time. And... Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's probably important for people that are opposed to focus on what they are doing and not be too catastrophic about about the idea that it could lead lead elsewhere. Um, now, now you've mentioned Evan Wolfson's losing forward strategy, which yep. helped to propel gay marriage to the law of the land, and it explained helped to explain why it seemed to happen so quickly. Is it your uh, contention that abortion activists should follow this same formula and it should work in the same way that it did with gay marriage? I think so. I mean, so, you know, the, 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 what, what happened, Evan Wilson um, uh, sort of came up with this term losing forward uh, mm-hmm. in 2004. And at that point, uh-huh. um, and a lot of your listeners may re- remember that was the year when, when uh, 13 states passed um, bans on same-sex marriage and constitutional amendments, and other, I believe, 11 did so in 2006, with the exception of North Carolina, all the states in the South did did so in this period, um, and these were won by you know landslide margins uh, everywhere, um, mm-hmm. 60, 70, sometimes 80 percent. And w- what had happened initially was that gay rights activists. Um, saw, you know, sort of looked down the barrel of these guns, and so we need to do everything we can to fight these bans, these constitutional amendments banning same-sex marriage in Alabama or Texas or Tennessee or wherever it was. And mm-hmm. um, they did what, what activists do. They, tried, they raised money, they commissioned polling, they put together campaigns, they, if it went through the legislature, they go to lobby legislators, they try to run TV ads, and Often to do that, they would try to come up with arguments designed to, to defeat the amendments. And that would be claiming that they overreached, claiming that they could have un- unintended consequences, um, but mm-hmm. nitpicking the, 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 the mechanism of using a, a constitutional amendment. And maybe at the margin, some of these 
uh, campaigns work. Maybe they decrease, you know, the final vote tally for these amendments from 75% to 70%. Who knows? But in no mm-hmm. instance did they get close to defeating one of these. And the, what, what Wolfson's argument was basically about was saying we need to stop if, when defeat is guaranteed, we need to think about how we lose in a way that moves our movement forward. Because if you spend mm-hmm. a lot of time arguing against one of your opponents, one of the proposals that your opponent has defined in a, um, to defeat it and, you're, and you don't actually defeat it, um, you've gained very little through that experience. But if you look at this as a, as a sort of horrible opportunity that your opponents have created, where they are taking your top issue and they are elevating it, they are making the public aware and interested in it, Um, then you should think about using that to make, to think about what would advance the broader strategic interests. And and I think that that is an important lesson for abortion access. Like some of these state laws, they are not going to defeat. And the things that you would do to try to defeat a particular proposal, and, you know, in this case, Texas or Mississippi or, you know, any other states that's going to imitate them, might not be the thing that serves the long-term strategic interests of the movement. And instead, start talking about the bigger issues, not just the problems with the one individual law that's in front of you. Hmm. Understood. And with that, sir, I'm going to pass it back to David for some more questions. David? Yes, um, Sasha, I wanted to ask, um, I noticed when the, the day the article came out, um, that, you know, on social media, including Twitter, you, uh, it was posted by both of you and Matty Iglesias about the article with the title. And I got the sense that some people read the title, just didn't like the word lose in it, you know, because, you know, yeah. no one likes to lose, and then reacted negatively. Um, what was the reaction to the article, I guess, by those that just read the title, and then by those that actually took the time to read it? Yeah, I think I think folks saw maybe a provocative title, and especially you know abortion activists, and and um, there's a and assumed that it was telling them not to fight, um, you know, and I, there's been a perception that I think many abortion activists have that it is at times borne out that like the rest of the democratic coalition or the left center left coalition has sort of thrown them under the bus at times. You know, a great example of this is, is probably during the Obamacare debate when, um, when the White House actually, you know, and this was something that Biden personally was tasked with, was um, striking a deal with conservative Catholic Democrats led by Bart Stubach of Michigan to put an exemption um, uh, for healthcare providers to not have to provide, I believe it was contraception as part of their um, their their insurance packages, and you know I think the read at that point from abortion rights activists was, you know, in in the quest to win uh, universal healthcare, Democrats were willing to throw aside their their supposed commitment to abortion rights, and I think people assumed that I was presenting a similar type of argument, um, like it's, I, I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not speaking for the Democratic Coalition here or anything, but <laughs> I, I, pursue, I, I assume that, that they thought that it was, you know, somebody saying don't, you know, don't raise a stink, you're, you're causing problems for, for everybody else on the team. Um, you know, folks who've actually read it, um, uh, you know, I think I have not heard um, – not to say that people can't take issue with it, um, but I have I have not heard the same sort of response to what's in it, and I think that you know it's a very difficult not just hearing the word lose, but it's a very difficult instinct I think to have to accept failure at first, and everybody's conditioned to want to fight to win, right? And um, you know, and this isn't to, 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 like to use a horrible sports. Uh, uh, analogy here um, for some, to something you know far less serious. Like this isn't some like high concept like tank the season so you could get a better um, a, a better pick or something that's you know avoiding the point. It's like you know you're you're down some number of runs in the eighth inning that you're not going to come back by. Like 
think about what you're doing because tomorrow you're going to have another game that matters just as much. And maybe, you know, think about who you bring in from the bullpen because uh, losing today and tomorrow is worse off. And, you know, this was, this was a very difficult discussion for Evan Wolfson to begin with people in the gay rights movement because often in, this case, in that case it was the state-level conflicts and folks in, you know, Tennessee who faced a ballot measure um, who didn't want to be told from, by some guy in New York you're definitely going to lose. So let's do this other strategy that isn't designed to beat back this horrible constitutional amendment, but is designed to think about the long term. That's, just, that's not how activists are built. That's not how many of us are built. And so I think folks who read that, you know, realize that, um, uh, that, that there are lessons. And, you know, one of the, for me, one of the advantages of having written about the, the, the marriage equality movement is everybody recognizes what a remarkable success it turned out to be in political and legal terms. And so, you know, I think that um, this is one of the reasons that I spent 10 years writing a book on the topic is that, that uh, the activists on the left and the right on all sorts of issues look at that as a movement that they can learn from whatever they're doing. And I, I think that, you know, people who are involved in the abortion rights fight who, who are um, honest with themselves and others about that uh, uh, probably recognize it too. Yes, it's funny you mentioned um, sports analogy because I was thinking kind of another one because I, I am a coach of, of multiple sports in the past um, and, of course, I love politics. And I look at a lot of times when you lose and you break things down, it's like watching game tape. Um, and if you burned every game tape when you lost, you wouldn't lose. You wouldn't learn from the yeah. mistakes. And, and you, of course, mentioned your um, book, The Engagement, but also that's in many ways what you did in the Victory Lab. Uh, you learn from right. past races uh, to, to how to apply those for the future. So I think that's uh, what a lot of folks need to learn, activists or otherwise. Um, well, before you go, I wanted to give you the chance. I know that you're on um, the book of engagements coming up, paperback. You're probably writing in other places. Just tell our listeners um, where they can keep, where they can get the book, and then also uh, where they can read your work um, from time to time. Yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, my website is sashaeisenberg.com. So it's s a s h a i s s e n b e r g dot com and um, you can order the engagement from anywhere you buy books, but there are links from my webpage. And um, if uh, anyone who orders it from any store online or in the real world, if you send me your receipt through my website, I'll send you a signed book plate. So it's almost like I signed your book myself. Um, so uh, uh, that, and you can also sign up there for, for updates um, uh, from me on future projects. I'm, I'm working on a book now about uh, – Disinformation and political campaigns. It's something of a sequel to the Victory Lab that'll be out in the fall of 2023. So that'll be my next uh, big project. But um, I think I'll probably continue, um, much as I did with this this uh, piece. You were nice enough to invite me on to talk about. Uh, you know, I think trying to mine some of the lessons that that gay marriage um, activists face, both in success and in failure, over the years they were working on this. To you know what what other people trying to, to win social change in, in other realms can learn from them. So I've, I'll probably have some more essays and op-eds and such um, on those themes over the course of the year. Yes, well, it was so great having you talk about this piece, and hopefully at some point in the future it would be great to have you on to talk about anything else you might write and, you know, the two books, uh, The Engagement and The Victory Lab, and then, of course, it's going to be a while, but, the, the sequel to the Victory Lab, I'm sure, is going to be an incredible read. I appreciate that. Thank you guys for having me. Thank, Thank you, you sir. sir. All right. That was Sasha Eisenberg. Um, that piece he wrote in Slow and Boring, and Slow and Boring, if you're not familiar with it, is a very engaging um, online newsletter, I'll call it, uh, online media source. It's part of Substack. Um, slowandborn.com, and it's usually Matty Iglesias, who was one of the co-founders of Vox, and um, to get Sasha Eisenberg, which, you know, if you haven't read, I've read, the, listened to the Victory Lab. Um, I have, I've read, like, excerpts from 
um, the engagement plan to probably listen to it now so I can uh, be familiar with it since uh, it's even going to be have more connection after hearing Sasha talk about, you know, lessons from that as well. So just good to have him on. Tim? Yeah, uh, I was I was going to say uh, also for those of you that, that follow Twitter, and I know a lot of our listeners do, um, Sasha Eisenberg is on Twitter. Uh, look him up, follow him because he's posting stuff all the time, really interesting, timely stuff. So we wanted to mention that as well, David. Yes. Well, um, let's get back to our discussion. We kind of hit a good point. We had talked about the governor's race. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's just going to take a while to, to continue to flesh out. We don't know which opponent Stacey Abrams will face. Uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, where she stands. Um, I'm sure she, fought, you know, she would probably like to be at least at the what 48 or so percent she got last well, time. Um, so she's under at that point, uh, and that's kind of yeah, a journey here, to get back at least to where she was last time and then add the extra few tens of thousands of voters. Yeah, yeah here's, here's a caveat there uh, that, that was mentioned in this, in this poll breakdown. This one is based on age. Abrams leads among voters under 50. The Republicans lead in voters over 50. Now, that's fine and good, but the problem I have there is guess which group is more likely to vote historically? Well, it's the voters over the age of 50. Uh, So that's where our work needs to be. We not only need to get some of those voters over 50, but apparently, because she's running behind, uh, voters under 50 don't seem to be energized in the way uh, that the other side's voters are. And we're going to have to work on that. It's, it's going to be turnout, turnout, turnout. That's where she yeah, needs to make up the ground. And I do think she is from probably a better position uh, from who she is and how her campaign team approaches things of turning out harder mm-hmm. to turn out voters. That's a strength of her and her fair fight operation. Um, but it is a little bit of a gap. And I, I tell you, if there's a way that they could find voters that voted for her in 2018 and now are either undecided or planning to vote for the Republican, you know, get a focus group of those people and find out why. I mean, it could, it could mm-hmm. be that, you know, they've just, oh, the prices are going up and it's all the Democrats' fault. It, it, it's going to be tough to change that. But you're not – I mean, everybody thinks when I say talk to persuadable voters that I mean these are talk to voters aren't voting for you. I'm talking about people that have voted Republican for the past 10 elections. I agree that those people are hard to reach, and you can spend just a very tiny little bit of time on them. But people that do mm-hmm. vacillate – from cycle to cycle, you've got to find out why. And if there's something you can mm-hmm. do to persuade them, that's who you got to focus on um, and, and figure out what's going on there. Um, and I would try to find those. Now, of course, there's going to be new people to the state. You know, new people are going to move in. They're Republican voters. New people are going to move in. They're Democratic voters. One would think right. that probably there's a few more Democratic voters moving in. You would think that the voters becoming yes. voters that weren't voters and the voters that are that have left the voter rolls – would also be positive for Democrats. So right. there's something else going on, either the way they've sampled the numbers or within the, that strand of you know 20% of the people that there's some movement. But let's go ahead and switch over to the Republic. I'm, the, I'm sorry, the Senate side. And in the Senate side, um, let's of course start off first um, with the Republican primary. Herschel Walker has 57%. His closest competitor is 13, 16 undecided. Um, there's really – there's just really uh, not a lot of um, traction that Gary Black has gained with the um, information that's come out on Herschel Walker. 57, I would think, since he's not an incumbent, let's say he splits the undecided you know, 50-50, that's going to give him you know, 65% of the vote. I don't see Herschel Walker losing the Republican primary. Do you? 
No, I don't. Even though, even though his opponents in recent days, and we we talked about this, have gone hardcore negative uh, with with really really tough attack ads, and I don't think this is really shaking up the thing either. I, I think uh, Herschel Walker is just, uh, you know, too too known of a commodity as far as the great things that he did, you know, in sports and, and, and that sort of thing. So he, he's, he's achieved iconic status in the world of college football. And as we know, college football is king uh, in this state. And I just see no way that, that he is going to lose. I think he's got that wrapped up. <clears throat> well, I, I do think it's a little deeper than that. It's tied into just Republican politics because I'll say this. I think if another – I mean I don't know who would have that iconic status um, as Herschel Walker In that this would be state, eligible nobody. to run for Senate because none of the current players are. But let, let's, just, let's just say Bill Goldberg. There was a guy that played at UGA. I think he played a little after Herschel. Um, you know, now worldwide recognized because of his wrestling career. Let's just say in some – microcosmic vacuum that Bill Goldberg ran for U.S. Senate as a Democrat, I don't think he would be, um, you know, doing this well. Now, we can debate, oh, who's a bigger deal in Georgia, and I agree, Herschel Walker and Georgia football legacy is a bigger deal, no doubt. But but I think there is something about – Herschel Walker has all these problems with, uh, you know, with mental health in one case, but then he took it out on women – and it's all these scandals that you think would hurt him, but it doesn't seem no. to because I think there's some people, if you said candidate A is an axe murderer and candidate B is a Democrat, there's a lot of Republicans that would go, my goodness, candidate B, those sins are unforgivable. He's well, a Democrat. See, I can forgive See, Herschel, Herschel Walker, in this particular case, has uh, a unique – thing working for him he has the support of the trump wing of the party he has the support of the mainstream republican wing of the party the trump voters support him because trump supports him the main wing of the republican party is supporting him because we have a 50 50 split in the u.s senate and man they see a great chance here with this candidate to win W-I-N, that's what they are interested in. So, you know, those two groups come together, and they're coalescing behind the winner uh, or or who they perceive as the winner. And and that's just the way way it is. And Gary Black, who would be, of course, a much better uh, U.S. senator, I'm sure, than Herschel Walker ever would, uh, you know, just – essentially has no chance here. It, it, you know, it's over the, for that reason. Yeah, and, and we don't really have a ton of time. In, endorsed by Nathan uh, Deal, um, Governor Deal, former Governor Deal, one of the more popular politicians, um, that endorsement just really um, has no real meaning. It's so funny that Nathan Deal probably, uh, I, w- I would argue, of the three Georgia governors that have been Republicans was the most effective. And yet his political brand is far less than, I would say, David Perdue or um, Brian Kemp. Yeah, pretty much. But but remember, we're still talking about a single individual here, Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker, college football superstar, Hall of Fame, national champion, all of that. Man, that means so much in this state. Everybody knows who he is. They know who he is, warts and all. And apparently they don't care about any of that. They care about winning this race, period. And that, and that's, just, that's just where we are. Yeah, I, I, I do think it is a lot more about Republican politics and them overlooking things uh, than – I, I do think if Herschel Walker would announce as a Democrat, let's just, that's probably even a better way because he has supported Democrats in the past. He supported Kathy Cox, supported Barbara Christmas, um, and so therefore I think if Herschel would have been running as a Democrat, 
um, you know, all they would have thrown the kitchen sink, and rightfully so, on all his past transgressions, and they'd have used it against him. And there, you'd have some of the people who are supporting him now would say, "Well, there's no way I can support him. He did this to his wife. He he played Russian roulette. Blah 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 blah." And and it would would be a big deal. I think it's a lot more about partisan politics, and like you were alluding to, the fifty fifty Senate. Now let's try to talk for just a second. In the general election, according to this poll, Herschel Walker leads Raphael Warnock 49-45. We've seen Raphael Warnock serve for over a year now in the Senate. We've seen him um, run his first campaign ads that I think are excellent. I think he is doing all the right things, and yet he's an incumbent five points below um, 50 Four points down to a weak candidate like Herschel Walker. What does this say about the Georgia electorate when Raphael Warnock is in this position? It says everything about Herschel Walker. I'm looking at the poll of polls here, compilation polling. Raphael <laughs> Warnock has been ahead in exactly one poll this year, and Walker has been ahead in the others. Now, this four-point gap is the biggest gap, however, and in compilation polling, the gap is less than two points. There is some wiggle room for Warnock, and I've got to believe if Stacey Abrams' fortunes improves, then uh, Senator Warnock's fortunes are going to improve as well. I truly believe she is the top of the ticket, and a vote for her is also going to be a vote for him. What do you think? Yes, I do think that they're going to get 90-something percent of the same voters, obviously. Let's talk about it, kind of alluding to what you just said and what you said earlier, crossover kind of voters. I could figure out exactly who a Kemp Warnock voter is. I don't know that I could picture an Abrams Walker voter. I, I think I could, but that's probably not a very serious individual. That's probably a person that's kind of blinded by celebrity. But what do you think? Could you can you find more, or will, would we find more Kemp Warnock voters than we would find Abrams Walker voters? We absolutely would find more Kemp Warnock voters. Absolutely. I, I wouldn't even have to think about that for a moment. Uh, uh, going from Walker to Abrams would have to be a bridge too far, I would think. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I know who that is. That's somebody that's just blinded by celebrity. And, you know, and even though she's a very serious individual, she does have a celebrity cachet about her. And obviously, Herschel Walker has. Tons of celebrity cachet, and somebody that probably spends their time watching the Kardashians or something would be that crossover voter, and there'd be very few of those. There'd be still very few Trump Warnocks, but here's the thing. If these races are a one- to two-point race, if we end up having a split decision on Election Day, would that not bode well for Raphael Warnock and having a better chance at re-election than Stacey Abrams does at election no, you know what? I think if Stacey Abrams loses, he loses. I do. I think if she loses, he loses. I, I do not think that he will pull in more votes than her. There's only 6% of the vote, according to this, in the Walker-Warnock uh, race that is undecided. That's not a, not a lot. I think she is strong enough and has a good enough organization to pull him across the finish line in such a tight race. But here's the thing. Who finished the best for the Democrats in 2018? Was it Stacey Abrams? Well, I mean, she, she – could she, she? I believe Raphael Warnock will run slightly ahead of her, and, and therefore they may both come across. But And it could even be this situation. What if it were so close that Brian Kemp gets 50 point something, 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 one, and then Raphael Warnock – um, and Herschel Walker, there's some libertarian candidate because of uh, particularly Herschel's uh, flawed warts on you know his personal life. They both stay under 50, and we have another runoff election for U.S. Senate because that would be a Raphael Warnock like a John Barrow figure who went into a runoff. Although unlike the Barrow race, this one would get the kind of attention that the 2020 runoff got. 
um, you know, if if it were that scenario. I, I'm just. I mean, I, I think I'm, it's I'm be that still kind of thinking deal. because. I'm thinking because of history in these these races going back um, all the way to Roy Barnes. I think they both win or they both lose. That that's where I'm going to settle for now until I see something that tells me otherwise. Well, I'm saying, and I'm I'm predicating this being very very close, like all four uh-huh. of the candidates were discussing. I'm not discussing for doing this, even though I do think he has an excellent shot, just as much as Brian Kemp of being the nominee. But I'm talking about the candidates all being around 50. Now, if this thing is a clear decision, I think that bodes very poorly for the Democrats and very well for the Republicans. Because if it's a five-point victory, um, th- th- then um, it's probably going to be for the Republicans. Because, or something's going to dramatically change in our political landscape that's hard to envision now. Um, so we shall see. Well. Thanks again for Sasha Eisenberg for coming on the show and looking forward to next week when I believe all three of us will be back on the show first time in a while. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice.